Hello there, Daryl Macias, your host for the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. Welcome to our March 2019 edition. Okay, so that was good, eh? You have a good friend? You can also put it on your friend's belly. Females have specific things that can occur to them that don't occur to us males. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Uh, I had that experience myself a couple of years before. W-A-F-R training. Man, what are you going to do in your life? Sit around and eat potato chips? <laughs> are you cold yet? That polar vortex is mighty cold. But Dr. Gordon Giesbrecht chats with us about an innovative way to rewarm hypothermic individuals as highlighted by his paper in the journal. And I know you're going to learn something I certainly did from our conversation. Then we're going to go into what wilderness first aid, wilderness first responder, and wilderness EMT training is really about and are really about before discussing a new wilderness alpine first responder, WAFR, WAFR or WAFR, just taught in the Everest region of Nepal. Then we're going to catch up with Mountaineer Conrad Anchor to discuss his upcoming projects. I have the pleasure of discussing the paper, Efficacy of Head and Torso Rewarming, Using a Human Model for Severe Hypothermia, with one of the authors, Dr. Gordon Giesbrecht, otherwise known as Dr. Popsicle, from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, where there's probably a heat wave going on. Welcome, Gordon. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, but I assure you, there is no heat wave. I think the wind chill is below minus 30 today, so I'm glad to be inside. Yeah, you had that uh, polar vortex going on. Where, where are you headed to right now? Well, right now I'm sitting in an, uh, a viewing area at, the, at a hockey rink. Uh, I'm dressed in my hockey stuff. And uh, as soon as we're done, I'm joining my Thursday lunch hockey group and uh, going to play hockey. Wow. I'm oh, a Canadian, eh? So hockey is involved in everything. So. Hockey. That's wonderful. Love it. Well, we're going to um, talk to you a little bit before you get on the... Uh, Ice, I wanted to just ask you to give a brief synopsis of your paper, which a lot of our readers and listeners will find very intriguing. Yeah, well, when you read the title, Head Warming, you know, you wonder, does that make any sense? But uh, basically, um, uh, you know, field warming of cold stress patients is advised by the WMS guidelines for treatment of hypothermia. You know, there's different ways that you can provide external heat out in the field. You can do it with chemical heat packs. Uh, there's even an electric heat pack that you can use outside now. Charcoal heater, which I've used quite a bit since 1986. You can use warm water bottles and uh, even a normal, everybody's heard about body-to-body rewarming. And we've basically studied all of those things and uh, found them to be advantageous. We've probably all heard that when you add heat to the body, if you do, you should do it either at the armpits, the groin, or the neck. And, uh, you know, we've done a bunch of work, and uh, for various reasons, probably the best place to add heat is uh, is around the upper chest, where the heart is. So if you have a source of heat, like a chemical heat pack, sure, stick it on the chest. If you have more, stick them in the armpits. And if you have another one, you could even add it uh, to the back, uh, as opposed to putting it in the groin or the neck. So we've done a lot of studies, and, and WMS uh, ta- uh, advises, you know, giving heat to the upper upper torso which is that chest area. But uh, there are some cases where uh, maybe you can't apply heat to the chest. For instance, if someone's doing CPR, that might not be possible. Or if someone has a a significant chest or torso wound that needs care, uh, you're not going to want to get in there and uh, provide heat. So we decided that we've done a series of of, uh, studies on heat transfer through the head 
both cooling and heating. And we thought, well, you know, what about if the head, what if we use the head uh, to transfer heat? And we have, we've done a study we published a few years ago uh, with mildly hypothermic people uh, who were shivering. And we applied the heat, and, and it was this, basically the same warming rate as, uh, as when they were shivering. And shivering is a huge amount of heat production. And uh, so that might actually interfere with the study of trying to figure out how, how effective is um, in applying heat to the chest or the torso. So we uh, decided to redo the study, only this time making people hypothermic, but then inhibiting shivering. And we did that with meparidine. And we need to make very clear here that uh, that you don't give meparidine is not a treatment for hypothermia. It is a we use that as just to create a human model for severe hypothermia, where we took cold people and gave them meparidine that stopped the shivering, and then the shivering heat production doesn't sort of mask whatever the effect of adding heat is. So essentially, we took people and uh, we cooled them off in eight degree water, uh, dropping their core temperature by a degree or so, and then we did three treatments. We gave them meparidine uh, during the last 10 minutes of cooling to stop their shivering. And that makes people feel a lot better, by the way. Uh, mm. And then we took them out, dried them off, and uh, wrapped them in a sleeping bag and either did nothing. That was our control or spontaneous warming. And then we took a charcoal heater, which you can see in figure one of the paper, and either applied it the traditional way around the chest or wrapping it around the head. So we did that three times in a balanced treatment order. And indeed, we uh, were, we showed by measuring metabolism that we eliminated shivering heat production. And uh, so then we went two hours in the sleeping bag and monitored how they warmed up. You know, the head and torso warming. We had similar results for after drop. And uh, the after drop was about 1.3 degrees in each of those conditions. The core warming rate was also similar between the two, 0.8 degrees C per hour. And we looked at the net heat gain, and that was similar for the head and torso, you know, increasing from a, a loss in the water of 370 watts loss to 84 watts gain during rewarming, during the last 30 minutes of warming. So, you know, we conclude that in cases where you can't get access to the chest, you, the head could be a viable option. If you, if you have your druthers, you would want to apply heat to the, to the chest. Absolutely. It's much easier keep more of the heat inside your, you know, the sleeping bag. But again, if you have those complications or contraindications, the head is a viable option. The end. Yeah. You guys mentioned that, you know, there are many ways of providing this exogenous external heat source, chemical heat packs, electrical heat pads, charcoal heater, warm water bottles or bags, which a lot of people in the backcountry would probably have to opt for to improvise. And there's even the good old fashioned normothermic human body. But how effective is that last method, that so-called buddy rewarming technique? But it was discussed, and a lot of people wonder about that. Yeah, we have studied it. And we call it body-to-body rewarming. First of all, a general comment, you know, we've been studying just about every possible way to warm people up. So the body, uh, we shiver when we get cold, and uh, when our skin is cold, we shiver. So we have found that uh, just about any external heat source that we give it warms the skin, and that skin warming inhibits some of the shivering heat production. And it seems that the amount of heat that you heat production, shivering heat production that you inhibit, is just about the same as the amount of heat that you're donating. The body's pretty smart that way, so that when people are shivering, the rewarming rate is just about the same whether you let them shiver or apply any other source of heat. So that's that's okay. That doesn't mean you shouldn't give heat. 
it's certainly when you give heat, you decrease the shivering heat production and people warm up at the same rate. This is if they're mildly hypothermic and shivering. That's okay because they're, they're, they're much more comfortable. They're not, they're not, their metabolic rate is less. Their, their energy requirements are less. Their work on the heart is less. And so, you know, if you have the option, even if someone's only mildly hypothermic, we still advise giving heat. In the uh, situation where someone's severely hypothermic and no longer shivering, then really they're, they're not producing heat uh, hardly at all, and you really do need to add some heat regardless. Back to body-to-body rewarming. Indeed, we've done uh, a study on this. So we, we showed that, indeed, we decreased heat production of, of, the, uh, of the victim or the, or the subject, not the victim, and that worked out okay. Uh, one concern that people have is that uh, it might be dangerous for the donor. Well, you're not going to be hypothermic hugging a, uh, a hypothermic uh, patient. So as long as the person who is the donor is normothermic to start out with, they're going to be fine. The technique is very important. This is where, you know, they basically need to have maximum skin contact in the skin. This is where modesty probably goes out the window a little bit. And you have to have, you know, tight skin connection. So uh, the, the best way to do that is spooning, the technical term there, but the description right. for that. Basically, the donor should press their front against the victim's back. And you can wrap your arms around and actually pull the victim towards you so you have maximum contact and you have nice tight contact. So you're, you're trying to facilitate heat transfer. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. So if you've got a male, you know, take their, take their shirt off. You know, if it's a female, well, you can take their shirt off, leave their bra on. And you want to maximize. And, and it's the, the skin contact on the torso. You know, the legs don't matter so much because there's not much heat transfer there. I could just add that we have done this technique both in shivering patients and in the severe model where we've inhibited shivering. It works. So the, the other major concern about body-to-body rewarming is it's very resource-intensive. And once you start that, you've now eliminated the possibility of any kind of transportation drink because it's tough to carry one person somewhere. It's impossible to carry two. So there are practical uh, aspects you need to have, you know, a cocoon that two people can get in, so like two sleeping bags, but they have to have similar zippers so that they can zip together. And uh, then the other thing is just to figure out uh, what is the resource implication. If there are three people in a group, and one person, you know, goes down with hypothermia. Now there's two people left. You know, if you put someone in the bag, you've cut your rescue team in half. You know, if there's a, you're out with a group of seven people and one person goes down, you put somebody in a sleeping bag and you still have five of you. So the, the resource implications are much less. So resource implications and whether you want to transport or not really play into that. And then, of course, the proper technique. Right. Well, and I, I suppose if you're in the backwoods, at least where there's wood, you could maybe start small fires around a victim and everybody can get help. But, you know, that's also a problem because that person has to stay stationary. But I should add about the fires. If you are staying somewhere, whether you're staying there as a nice, healthy group having fun or a healthy group taking care of a victim or you're surviving on your own, lighting a fire is a great idea. It keeps you busy. It occupies the mind. It does provide an opportunity or a heat source to dry clothing and things like that. But it is not a method for either warming from hypothermia or thawing out a frostbitten tissue. Of course, if you wrap somebody up in a sleeping bag, the heat from a fire is not going to affect them at all. And if you open up the sleeping bag so they can have a feeling of warmth, they're going to be radiating heat. out. Of, their heat loss is going to be greater even if you stick them beside a bonfire. The fire would be helping the rescue group, their state of mind, but it's not going to be helping the victim.
Now, I've seen many advocate for groin rewarming. It's taught in a lot of wilderness courses and whatnot. And of course, we want to avoid hurting those tingly bits. But you guys state that applying heat to the groin is not preferred, nor is it effective. And I'm wondering why is that? Yeah, of course, everybody, this is one of those everybody knows statements, right? Everybody knows you should apply heat to the groin, the armpits, and the neck. And uh, the whole idea, first of all, again, the background for that, when you're going to apply heat, if you want to transfer it to the core, the reason they talk about the groin and the armpits and the neck is because that is where there are large vessels, large veins, actually, uh, close to the surface so that you can uh, you can actually transfer heat from the skin surface, and in this case, if you are uh, put heat near that big vein, uh, you are transferring uh, heat into the blood, which is then returned to the heart. So theoretically, you've got femoral veins in the, in the groin there. That's a great theoretical possibility. There are probably three different problems with that. One is, you know, if I ask people to you know, just demonstrate how you would do this, they'll have the person laying down and they'll just, you know, take a, a heat uh, source and just sort of lay it on, on on their front in the groin area. Well, of course, that's not in contact. If you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you have to do it right, and you need to take that heat source and you need to really stick it down in the groin, overlaying the uh, the femoral vein. Uh, and then if you had two, then you could do it on either side and and do the femoral and get both femoral veins. The reality is people don't understand that, and so they don't do it. So they're wasting that heat. You know, it's unlikely, uh, you know, that a chemical heat pack is going to cause a skin burn, especially if you have, if you follow the manufacturer's recommendations to have at least one layer of material in between the skin and the heat source. So you're not going to burn, you know, sensitive areas. But, uh, you know, I kind of joke around a bit, especially in the States, if you do apply too much heat, you uh, burn somebody in the groin, you're more likely to get sued than if you burn somebody in the armpit. Yeah, good point. <laughs> well, I should I, I should just point out the other point about the neck is that uh, yeah. the neck is, a, is is fine. You've got carotid, you know, the veins coming right down the neck there. It's great. The problem with that is, uh, although that is a theory, technically a good place to transfer heat, you know, you're going to have a person wrapped up in some kind of cocoon where the face, you're going to have a face opening so that you can, uh, they can breathe and uh, your source of heat is right near that face opening. So there the problem is some of the heat might just, just escape through the face opening. Whereas when you wrap, if you have a chance to put all your heat around the upper torso and have them in a sleeping bag, all that heat is A, in a good place, A, it is against the skin area in a tight so that there is heat transfer and it's within the sleeping bag. So uh, it's efficient and you're not wasting any heat. Shivering costs energy. So even if you have someone who is cold stressed or mildly hypothermic, HT1 for example, you'll lessen that physiologic burden on the cold person. So add heat, even if someone's mildly hypothermic. Buddy rewarming? Yep, it can be effective, and it doesn't really pose a danger to the heat donor, but it can impede rescue efforts if there aren't many rescuers. Keep in mind that what matters is heating the torso, not so much the legs. So a fair bit of modesty below the belt might be okay. What about fires? Giesbrecht doesn't recommend this for rewarming a hypothermic patient and states that if wrapped up, there may be little benefit adding a fire. However, if you open the victim's sleeping bag, the heat loss would exceed heat gain. Now, there really aren't any studies on this, however, but a few case reports indicate that a small fire is helpful. I've used small fires to rewarm individuals in the mild or moderate hypothermic stages 
once I've made sure that that person has a shelter being out of the elements and I have added warm water bottles to the patient. However, as you'll hear in a few minutes, Dr. Giesbrecht does not advocate the use of fire. Too hot a fire can burn, and we know never, never rewarm a frostbite with fire. Now, what about groin rewarming? Well, this is usually done incorrectly since the femoral arteries and veins are usually not in contact with the heating element, and they should be in contact with the warm water bottle, that is the femoral arteries, the veins, or that chemical heat pack. Now, make sure you keep a layer between the groin and that chemical heat pack. The neck can be useful, but the heat should not escape if you're rewarming the neck, if you're considering rewarming the neck, because a lot of times the face airway opening can allow for egress of heat. I'd like to talk about the term core temperature afterdrop. How does this happen to a hypothermic subject, and uh, is it clinically significant in your experience, Gordon? Yeah, so afterdrop is, is a physical uh, entity that basically if you take any, any object and cool it, and put a, a, a probe, a temperature probe in the middle of it, and you take it out of the cold, the center will continue to cool for some period of time until the heat from the surface gets to the center and then it starts to warm up. And that will happen even in an inanimate object or, or a dead body. It's still going to cool. It gets exacerbated when you have a body that has blood flow. Just think when, when we get cold, one of the thermoregulatory responses is vasoconstriction or decreasing blood flow in the periphery. And when you're really, really cold, like moderately to mild to severely hypothermic, you have very little blood flow, you know, from the from the, the upper thighs down. So you have your legs, which are like 40% of your body mass, with very little blood flow. And so that tissue is getting much colder than the core is. So now you uh, take someone out of the cold and you have that natural physical thing happening where the, the core is going to cool a little bit. But any, if you do anything to increase blood flow into those legs or the arms, but it's a bigger effect on the legs. And you think uh, you've got this really, really cold muscle tissue out there and you increase blood flow through it. The blood that, you know, the hypothermic blood, say 34 degrees coming from the heart, goes into the legs, cools much more and comes back to the heart and cools it off even more. So we say anything that increases blood flow to the, uh, to the limbs during cooling is, uh, is going to cool the heart more. And, of course, you've got a cold heart, which is the danger in hypothermia. You know, the fatal event in hypothermia is your heart stops because it's cold. So you've got a heart that's already cold, and then you cool it off even faster. And uh, if that increased blood flow is because uh, you have a person vertical or walking or trying to do some exercise, uh, now the blood flow, the blood pressure goes down and the heart works harder. So you ask a cold heart to work harder. And uh, that's why people can die. And that in one of the reasons why people can die during the right during the rescue period, if you increase blood flow to the limbs. So that's interesting. So that would speak to somebody who's severely hypothermic, and then you rewarm them exogenously. And then that's where, you know, they could get ventricular fibrillation or whatnot. But you... well, okay, but I got I to gotta stop you there. Okay. We, we, cannot, we cannot think that warming exogenously will put a person in danger. Okay. Uh, so, so first of all, if you warm, you know, the, up, the core, the, the torso, you know, the body is going to, at best, the body is going to warm up very gradually. And uh, you're not going, thermoregulatory-wise, you're not going to all of a sudden release all this blood to the uh, limbs. 
this has been a problem in the 60s and 70s. You know, people said, no, you shouldn't warm somebody up in the field because you could cause this massive increase of blood flow to the limbs. Well, that's not going to happen from warming. There's only one thing that's going to do that, and that's if you put somebody in a tub of warm water, which is possible. Yes. In some wilderness situations, you could go to some... I actually did that once before I knew what I was doing. Thankfully, it was a, the person wasn't that cold, so I didn't do any damage. But um, if you, uh, you know, it was a cabin out, to, out in the middle of nowhere, but it was winterized and they had a bathtub that was working, so we filled it up with warm water. So it is possible and it's relevant for the wilderness setting. But uh, stay away from that. Don't, don't ever put anybody in a shower or a tub or put them near a fire or fire-heated objects like rocks. So the problem with uh, fire-warmed rocks is, uh, you know, they can be really hot and burn you, right? Whereas a chemical heater, uh, a chemical heat pad is, is formed. So, it, it, it's, you know, if you have a, a you know, one layer of uh, cloth clothing in between, you know, it's not going to get so hot. It's, it's, a, it's a controlled heat source. So the, it's important to know that what we've talked about the afterdrop and not increasing blood flow to the legs is not going to happen from any of those sources we've talked about, chemical heat packs, charcoal, heater, body-to-body warming, all those kinds of things. This phenomenon is going to be caused by things like, you know, you've, you've come across a victim who's sitting down and they're a hero, they want to get up and walk around. Well, that will increase blood flow. Or you lift them up vertically or you take them out of water and remove the hydrostatic squeeze that is around the legs, squeezing blood out of their legs. You take them out, now there's no pressure on the legs anymore, so blood pools down in the legs. I mean, it doesn't stay there, but a greater percentage of your volume goes down there. Blood flow is increasing, cooling, and going back to the heart. So these are things that are physical manipulations, not any source of warming except for water if you put somebody in a warm bathtub. So no exercise and don't dump them in a hot spring. That's right. Core temperature after drop does happen. In a cold person, The thighs having 40% of blood flow are vasoconstricted. That tissue is colder than the core that is being rewarmed. If you then increase blood flow through these cold muscles, the blood going from the heart to the thighs cools down, and this colder blood returns to the heart. If the temperature is low enough, this can cause a dysrhythmia. This especially happens if the patient is upright or exercises to rewarm. So no exercise, and have the patient not stand. This can also apply to someone in cold water who walks out and, by virtue of increasing that cold thigh blood flow return to the heart, as well as removing that hydrostatic water pressure when they're in the water, well, that could cause afterdrop. I would be interested in hearing comments from those of you that are really into survival and have had experience with warming hypothermic folks in the woods since... In this podcast interview, the use of fire was not advocated, nor was the use of hot rocks. Now, I'm not sure if this refers to rock reflectors or something which would burn and not help rewarm someone, such as placing a hot rock on somebody. But definitely do not, I repeat, do not throw someone in a hot bath or shower. I too did this once, and I'll never do it again. One of the things that I'm coming across are these avalanche resuscitation guidelines that advocate the determination of core temperatures to determine if a resuscitation should be carried through. And they talk about utilizing an esophageal probe, which is kind of impractical for most backcountry 
practitioners, have you come across any suitable or accurate enough devices, temperature devices to approximate a core temperature measurement in the field other than something invasive like an esophageal probe? It's technically not invasive. It's, uh, you know, the alimentary tract is uh, technically outside the body. It's just a tube that runs from mouth to, mouth to anus. But um, so there, there are, uh, there's a GenTherm uh, makes one, and I don't, I don't advocate any uh, brand names, but that's the only one I know of at this point. It's a small, portable. There's no reason why a, uh, you know, a, a, a search and rescue medical team could ha- couldn't have that with them. So it is perfectly uh, legitimate. You know, especially in Europe where they're flying people into these places and the transport uh, distances are shorter than some of the places in North America. Um, there's no reason why you can't uh, have that. I, I, I will tell you, I, I have not spent a lot of time, you know, looking at these different surface uh, uh, estimators of core temperature, so I, I can't answer that. I own a, a, a small portable esophageal probe system, and if I was going out on a rescue, that's what I would take with me. It's important to note the WMS guidelines do point out that uh, that is not only uh, possible but indicated. You know, and if you can't, there are there are other options available. But uh, this is all consistent with the WMS guidelines. No, that's good to talk about because a lot of us think, gee, you know, that's a little bit invasive. But that sheds new light that it really isn't invasive like we think about it. And yeah, we ought to just do it. Yeah, so it's important, though, of course, that you need to know what you're doing. You don't just go buy one at the drugstore and have anybody try it, right? You have to make yeah. sure. I mean, if you if you happen to get in the trachea and you go too far, well, you can put a hole in the lung. So you need to have somebody who has some training, know the length that you need to put it in, and and uh, you know know how to insert it. But that training is is not. You don't have to go to med school to be able to put in an esophageal probe. Okay, maybe I've been a slacker. In our interview, it was pointed out that esophageal temperature probes are really not so invasive, and yes, the WMS guidelines for treating hypothermia prefers the use of such a probe as well as some of the avalanche guidelines. Hopefully, there are small monitors out there I can get hold of. The available esophageal probes aren't ready to plug in the iPhone yet, unlike the cool Butterfly IQ ultrasound probe. Inserting the probe isn't difficult, but it is important to get training. Well, lastly, I heard you had a recent underwater symposium on drowning prevention. And do you have any quick, useful tips on escaping that submerged vehicle? Yeah, we had a lot of fun. That was, uh, I'm not sure if it's been done before, but we actually had uh, three hard hat uh, divers who actually gave the lecture underwater on a screen underwater. But a third of the audience were scuba divers underwater. And one of the topics we did was uh, vehicle submersion. The bottom line, we talk lots about it, but you just have to remember SWOC, S-W-O-C, and that is seatbelts off, windows open, out immediately, children first. So vehicle, uh, if you're in a vehicle in water, uh, it is basically, it'll float for a while. It is basically a boat with a big leak. And uh, the leak is primarily through floor vents and things like that. The vehicle will tilt uh, to the heavy end, which is normally the front because that's where the motor is in most cars. And the uh, water will come in the, uh, the floor vents, and, it'll, and the air will escape through the trunk. Basically, your window will open. A, a it can physically open. And B, uh, your electric window system will work certainly for 30 seconds or more. If you take your seatbelt off and open your window, that's all five seconds worth. So there's no reason why your window should not open if you, start, if you remember SWOC and do it right away. 
if you wait too long, uh, once the water uh, rises up against, you know, say about approximately halfway up your window or higher, now it's putting so much pressure on the window against the door frame that uh, even though your motor works, it, it can't provide enough force to lower that window. And so usually you have, we say you've got like a golden minute as in so many other scenarios where, uh, you know, while, the, while your, your vehicle is still floating high enough that you can still open the windows. So open the window and get out. Do not try the door. The water's higher on the outside than the inside, so there's lots of pressure on the door pushing it, and it's actually, it is very solid for sure. You know, if you do it quick enough, you, it is possible to open the door, but then the problem is you open the door, now water goes in really quickly, uh, and then the vehicle goes down really fast, and the fact that the vehicle's going down slams the door shut, and we've actually done a demonstration where, we had a tough guy from Special Forces in there, but he didn't hear my instruction. I said, don't open the door. But thankfully he did because it gave us a great video and the door slammed on his hand. So now he was stuck in the vehicle and his hand is trapped in the door. Now, two things. First of all, we had scuba tanks in there and we raised it up so he didn't drown. And he's tough so he didn't break his hand. But uh, And the vehicle, even if you happen to get out, that vehicle is going straight to the bottom and anybody else who is still in the vehicle... You've just signed their death warrant. They're, they're going to die for sure. So it's very simple. Get your seatbelt off, open the window, and get out. And if you have kids, uh, you need to uh, get the uh, kids uh, out first. So push them out the window before you. You know, you might think, well, I'm going to go out, then I'll reach back in and pull them out. But if, that, uh, if you get out and that just happens when the water starts flowing in the door, the windows, and the, and the vehicle starts to sink really quick, now you've got a big problem. So if you push them out ahead of you, you know for sure they're going to get out. Swak, seatbelts, windows, out, children first. I like that to be the, uh, the stop, drop, and roll of the 21st century. Here it is. We heard it first on this podcast, and we will propagate that. Cool. Okay, so that was good, eh? Thanks. So, so much for your time. This has been very informative, and I know our listeners and readers are going to get a lot out of this. Well, that's great. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. I uh, hope people like the paper and uh, the other stuff. And, uh, you know, I'll just close with my usual advice, which is to keep cool, but don't freeze. Well, thanks so much. Have a safe hockey game. Hey, the boys are out on the ice. They're all warming up. I'm looking at them. Looks like I need to be black instead of red today, and uh, I'll be on the ice in five minutes. Awesome. Well, have a great time. We look forward to talking to you soon. Hey, thanks a lot. See you. Bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. Escaping the submerged car. Remember, SWAC. Seatbelt off. Windows open. Out immediately. But children are rescued first before you escape. Seatbelt. Windows. Out. Children. You have a minute to do this before the car plummets to the bottom. Trying to open the door, on the other hand, is a waste of time. Don't do it. Let's talk about wilderness EMS education with an update from the Kumbu Climbing Center in the Everest region. What we'll be discussing are the several models that exist, including wilderness first aid, and Wilderness First Responder Certification, among others. There isn't a lot of information other than information as promulgated by certain organizations that teach these courses, many of which are private or for-profit. If you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend the book Wilderness EMS put out by Seth Hawkins. This actually won the Innovative EMS Award 
just recently, and so I highly encourage this book. And there's a chapter about wilderness EMS education that Seth, as well as Corey Winstead, have published in the book. There are also various PubMed sites that might have some information, but none are definitely exhaustive. So let's try to wade through wilderness EMS education, and then we'll talk about the Kumbu Climbing Center. Outdoor recreation in the U.S., at least, has exploded in the last several decades, and there's variable types of education offered out there, ranging in commitment, cost, and complexity from short half-day modules to training programs involving hundreds and hundreds of hands-on and lecture hours. So what do we do? How do we choose a given educational topic that will fulfill our needs or the needs of a employer? There are some courses that offer wilderness medicine types of teaching to those without any prior medical knowledge and are primarily courses that are interested in expanding a given practitioner, if you can call it practitioner's capacity, to provide care for themselves and companions on isolated wilderness outings. And this might be something such as a wilderness first aid class, and it could actually morph into something a little more complex, such as what we would call a wilderness first responder course. And it's going to depend on employers as well, such as trip leaders who might count the safety of their participants as one of the professional responsibilities that a given guide or somebody would need to have as far as a certification. Now, the first responder training ground has grown to be distinct really from emergency medical service pre-hospital conception of what we would call a first responder, despite originally being attached to this EMS credential by early schools such as Solo and Wilderness Medical Associates International. At this time, no universally recognized or mandated national standard for training wilderness medicine providers, and there's no widely utilized accrediting body, and there's no government agency that oversees or regulates any of these common certifications. So as such, specifically wilderness medicine types of credentials such as wilderness first aid, the WFA, and wilderness first responder, WFR, cannot be viewed in the same light as other certifications such as MD, paramedic, physician assistant, and whatnot that conform to a widely accepted or government mandated set of competencies. And have a universal state-regulated credential system. But over the years, individuals and groups of respected wilderness medicine experts have worked to build a consensus regarding training content. For example, the Wilderness Medical Society has published non-binding practice guidelines and curriculum recommendations. Educators have the freedom to cater and adapt their courses to the needs of whatever consumer as they see fit, and to draw on the strengths and experiences of that particular instructional staff. And it can be recognized from the history of pre-hospital medicine, or EMS, that governmental regulation could potentially bring with it increased bureaucracy and red tape, slowed progress, and decisions made on considerations beyond those simply of excellence in patient care. From the standpoint of risk and cost, the buyer and the buyer's employer should be aware of substandard, outdated, or irrelevant instruction from rogue or inferior educational providers because the absence of widespread accreditation and regulated content and practice scopes can put the onus on the consumer to discriminate among various products and vendors, which can be 
quite confusing. And if you do an internet search or a Google search on some of these companies, there's a plethora of companies that offer some of the courses that we're going to be talking about, but they're not all equivalent. Let's first talk about a Wilderness First Aid Certification, or a WFA. Now, these are more an introduction to wilderness medicine, not a thorough exploration of a topic. And usually these are introductory courses for people who may be considered lay people. And usually these courses, at least in the United States, have significantly varying instructional hours. And again, choosing from a menu of educational companies and offerings can be fairly overwhelming. However, there's been an initiative by the Wilderness Medicine Education Collaborative to standardize this type of teaching. But of course, you have other groups such as the Boy Scouts of America, the Emergency Care and Safety Institute, and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons that actually might deviate from this guideline promulgated by the Wilderness Medicine Education Collaborative. And then, of course, there's a proprietary wilderness and remote first aid course offered by the American Red Cross. But having said that, there are many excellent groups that teach wilderness first aid. Now, the most common training format for a wilderness first aid person is a 16-hour course delivered over two days, although there are some variations in this model. And some companies actually will provide a three-day wilderness first aid course, and some may even include CPR, and then there are other hybrid courses. But generally, a wilderness first aid course will typically last about 16 hours. Now, given the time constraints of providing such a broad curriculum in this short 16-hour period, a wilderness first aid class tends to focus heavily on prevention and recognizing key and obvious signs of symptoms with very little time available for anatomy and physiology. And there's only basic treatment of some injuries and illnesses that can feasibly be covered. And even though there is some limitation in the scope, a wilderness first aid course is often a pretty good introduction to what we would call wilderness medicine. Wilderness first aid certifications are generally valid for about two years. Then we go into the next tier, which is what we would call a wilderness advanced first aid certification, or the WAFA, the WAFA. And it can fulfill the needs of recreationalists seeking more training than a standard wilderness first aid class, but they don't have time for a full wilderness first responder class, which we will talk about very soon. Individual companies self-define the intent of their courses and their particular standard operating procedures for graduates. These wilderness advanced first aid types of trainings can last in four to five day formats, and some companies may offer a hybrid self-directed or on-site format as well. And it's pretty much up to the educating body to decide what they want to include, but usually there's more in-depth anatomy, physiology, leadership skills, long-term patient care, greater injury and illness assessment tools, exploration of evacuation options, or further resources for any given treatment provided. And generally, the Wilderness Advanced First Aid certifications are valid for about two years. Well, now we get into what we would call basic life support. And let's talk about the wilderness emergency medical responder. So this is not a woofer or wilderness first responder course, but specifically the wilderness emergency medical responder course. And it's critical because this is a new nationally recognized EMS certification. And it tends to replace at least the EMS certification level of first responder, which keep in mind, 
this is not equivalent to a wilderness first responder. This is more of an urban EMS certification level of first responder. For decades, the wilderness first responder, the WFR, WFR course and certification shared part of its name with this nationally recognized certification of first responder or emergency medical responder. But to clarify, this is more, uh, at least with regard to a first responder, not a wilderness first responder, but first responder course was standardized and regulated beginning in the mid-1990s by the U.S. Department of Transportation that also regulates EMT and paramedic training guidelines and standards. So there is a new emergency medical responder recognized EMS certification, and it is replacing the EMS certification level of first responder. But this is not a wilderness first responder. They are different. EMS first responder curriculum was originally conceived around motor vehicle accident response, and now it's been expanded to include basic techniques in urban injury stabilization and medical resuscitation in a very basic way. Emergency medical responder, or what we would call EMR training, it can take approximately 48 to 60 hours to achieve competency, but there's no actual requirements on contact time. And a lot of wilderness EMS schools have offered and still offer opportunities to add or combine this EMR urban first responder certification to a wilderness first responder class. And so then you get into something called a wilderness emergency medical responder, which combines both of these, WEMR. The growing distinction between a regular woofer class and a wilderness emergency medical responder class more clearly than ever delineates a difference between wilderness medicine and then wilderness EMS, which are also a little bit different as well. The Wilderness Emergency Medical Responder Certification tries to create a hybrid EMS and wilderness medicine certification using standards and terminology familiar to EMS regulators with additional added wilderness modular components. The wilderness first responder courses are completely divorced from any EMS certification, and they can grow on their own as true wilderness medicine certification without the need to match regulatory EMS standards necessary with a wilderness emergency medical responder. And I know this is where things become a little bit confusing, but just remember a WEMR is a combination of a woofer, plus an emergency medical responder. And some EMS regulatory bodies may recognize this. So let's go into Wilderness First Responder. This is a certification, the WOOFER certification, at which wilderness medicine training expands significantly upon the idea of first aid. And many consider this a quote-unquote professional certification. And many trip leading organizations require a WOOFER certification for their trip leaders. Some WIFR courses are run over eight or more straight days. Some courses take a day or more break in the middle to allow students to relax or return home. And still others have adopted a distance learning model, allowing students to complete some amount of curriculum on their own, such as an online type of curriculum, before completing the remainder of the course on site, which is generally no less than five days. And of course, some colleges actually provide WIFR certification over a given semester or quarter, including field sessions. A woofer certification is going to encompass about 70 hours, but there's variability between 50 and 80 hours. But 70 hours seems to be a pretty much accepted norm. And again, this can be in the form of hybrid certification. And you can spend, again, 
anywhere from five to 10 days completing the certification process. And these certifications are generally current for about two to three years from the completion date of the course with some providers allowing a third year grace period. And specific recertification courses are generally two to three days in length and are designed to recertify not only WOOFER certifications, but also Wilderness Advanced First Aid providers, the wilderness portion of Wilderness EMT providers, which we will talk about, and some others. This group that I alluded to, the Wilderness Medicine Education Collaborative, or WMEC, more abbreviations, love it, basically provided a set of guidelines or standard operating procedures a few years ago, back in 2016. And these Folks recommend a list of topics that should be included in a minimum 70-hour woofer course, such as patient assessment, BLS, circulatory systems such as shock and ACS or acute coronary syndrome, respiratory, nervous spine, and soft tissue injury disorders, musculoskeletal heat injuries, hypothermia, local cold injury, altitude, lightning, submersion, and select medical problems, toxins, medical legal considerations, and then you can include search and rescue, scuba injury, mental health, and marine toxins. There's a lot of liberty with what you can do, but what we tried to do at the KCC in this course that I'm going to describe is try to keep along with this scope of practice as much as we could, but for obvious reasons, because we taught in the Everest region, we deleted some things such as scuba injuries, which actually could be applicable since there are scuba divers that rarely go up to places such as Gokio Lake at about 20,000 feet, but for this year it was just too complicated and many of our Sherpas do not involve themselves in these sort of expeditions. Then lastly we can talk about Wilderness EMT or WEMT certification which is a higher level of training and these are for folks who would want to be working at the EMT level in both wilderness and urban environments or whose expeditions or organizational responsibilities require a higher level of certification than the standard woofer. And it isn't formally recognized in most states, although it's well known in the outdoor industry. And generally, even though offerings can vary, many EMT courses offered by wilderness EMS education providers are 15 class days and maybe some separation on weekends. And depending on the state and the provider and the educators, a graduate could actually be able to sit for the National Registry EMT examination. A big difference between an EMT or WEMT and the woofer course that I talked about is that a lot of companies actually coordinate an opportunity for students to complete some amount of clinical hours mandated by a state or governing body. And this is usually accomplished through ride-alongs with a local EMS service or observations in an emergency department. The final training requirements, be it EMR or EMT, is actually up to an individual state. In other words, we're not talking about a United States federally mandated type of training protocol. It's up to your particular states. And some states are more liberal with introducing certain protocols than other states. The other sticky thing is some states accept reciprocity from other states, but many states have their own testing and continuing education requirements. So you may be certified as a wilderness EMT responder in a given state, but it may not be valid in another state. So you have to be careful of these sort of things. The National Registry doesn't have an official jurisdiction, but it's recognized throughout the United States. And so a certification 
from the National Registry is accepted in many states. So if you're able to get a National Registry certification to be an EMT, that will help. A lot of these wilderness schools have chosen to prepare their students who are taking wilderness EMT courses to be able to sit for a National Registry examination rather than just a local state examination as well. So if you go for this NREMT certification, it's valid for about two to three years after the completion of an individual's course. Head County 911, what is the address of your emergency? It's not an emergency. I walked up, they went and served me. So I'm at the Taco Bell at 9th or 7th in Washington. Yeah, I just want some tacos. That's it. And so now we can segue into an update from the Kumbu Climbing Center. Many of you who've been listening to the podcast may remember that our UNM International Mountain Medicine Center went over to the Kumbu area, the Everest area, to teach climbing Sherpas and mountain guides medical skills and whatnot. We did that this year where we taught medical skills to instructors, guides, and beginning students in Fort Say, Nepal, which is not very far from Everest, perched high above the Kumbu Valley. And this year, we were able to do more medical classes, and our Wilderness and Austere Medicine Fellow, Dr. Nikki Mansfield, joined Dr. Jake Jensen and myself to do much of the basic teaching, and we also spearheaded a new Wilderness First Responder course, but we changed the name to a Wilderness Alpine First Responder course, basically called a WAFR. So you can talk about a woofer, Wilderness First Responder. We did a WAFR, which is a tailored course we targeted to meet the needs of our mountain guides and climbing Sherpas. Concurrently, high angle rescue classes and mountaineering skills were taught to these new students. In evenings, were spent on various environmental and other interesting topics. And what was interesting is that the National Geographic was there to give talks about the weather and the climate in the area with regard to observed climactic changes as seen by the society. And Everest climbers Pete Athens and Conrad Anker were also able to give great talks relative to the work they're doing with some climatology studies in the area as well. Talks would entertain lively conversations and interesting treatments initiated by our friends in Nepal. First, here's a little excerpt from Dr. Nikki talking a bit about frostbite. Is if somebody has frostbite and we get them out of the cold, it's going to start to thaw or rewarm without any help from us. And that's okay. That's what we want it to do. You can also take the frostbite and put it against your skin inside of your jacket, under your shirt, and in your armpit. You have a good friend, you can also put it on your friend's belly. So you're going to use somebody else's body heat to help rewarm that area. Although she briefly discussed the role of thrombolytics to this group of 80 basic students without much medical training, we emphasized simple treatments. She talked about more passive rewarming and treating hypothermia. Now, of course, there are some myths that persist, and we discouraged things such as rubbing the extremities in the snow, but somebody asked about the role of a product called Sancho, which is used out there in Nepal for various ailments, and somebody said, can you use Sancho in treating frostbite? Sancho is a name of an ointment made over there which contains eucalyptus and menthol or some methyl salicylate. During Nikki's talk, 
I did a PubMed search during the talk to find out about Sancho or any of the products contained in Sancho and its possible treatment with frostbite treatment. And guess what? There were no published studies. But generally, we discourage its use since the ointment can be irritating and probably could make things worse. And no miraculous treatment would probably result, but of course, it could harm an individual. So if you're going to Nepal, remember the word or the product Sancho. Don't rub it on your frostbitten extremities. After the main KCC course of 12 days for the basic students, we held a 70-hour course which covered most of the Wilderness First Responder curriculum with some deletions such as marine medicine. And we chose rather to specialize in alpine emergencies and rescues that our climbing guides and Sherpas would probably have to deal with. And these were not basic students. These were advanced students. These were instructors. So they've definitely had quite a lot of wilderness first aid training, but we decided to up the ante and up the training a little bit, which was really fun. Females have specific things that can occur to them that don't occur to us males that can be very deadly and very dangerous. When I talk about that, I'm talking about one thing in particular. And that's called an ectopic pregnancy. We also added some things such as suspension stress trauma, avalanche medical resuscitation, leadership, and spent more time on key subjects such as altitude illness and cold weather emergencies. And given the past experience of Nepal and this region in particular, we also discussed more at length on crush injuries and what to do for patients post-rockfall or earthquakes. And scenarios reflected more mountain pathology. And we also added a more comprehensive survival skill module. Additionally, all of our 25 students who are KCC instructors and guides received a medical kit courtesy of Adventure Medical Kits. So thank you very much, Adventure Medical Kits. This is a shout out to you. Thanks for your generosity. And of course, the majority of our time though, was spent on scenarios because what we did is, yes, we wanted to push our students and they actually took the punishment quite well. Organize! Look, he's bleeding, bleeding! Come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go! Remove this one, remove this Gloves, personal protection, first aid kits, over there. Organize, organize, who's in charge? Who is in charge? Come on, come on, come on! And of course, lots of fun was to be had. Do 18. We were able to include some videos before the class for review as well. And the actual contact class time was five days, but along with our online videos, which were required viewing beforehand, students got 70 hours of training and instruction. 24 out of 25 of the students received their certificates and of note, one of the KCC instructors received a scholarship to work with Search and Rescue on Denali, the Grand Teton, and Yosemite Search and Rescue, or Yosar. I'm Kesar Shrestha from Lower Sulukumbu, still Everest area. I'm mountain uh, mountain leader, trekking guide, and climbing guide. Tell me about some of the mountains you've been up. Can you list off a few that you've climbed? Oh yeah, I have been to Labuja Peak, Iceland Peak, 
and um, several other mountains, okay. uh, which is over uh, 6,000. Well, tell me, you're most of the way done with this wilderness first responder class that we've been giving. How do you feel that this training might benefit or help you in the future? Well, I have done a couple of um, first aid course, wilderness uh, first aid course here in Nepal. But this course I found a little bit, little bit different than those because we can talk something, something more than the first aid. Um, this after this course, I've I started develop the more confidential level that I can do. I can help a lot more than before on my career and wilderness. Because um, I teach the mountain leader course here in Nepal, but this this course helps me for that as well. Even to teach something there how we can do the first aid and in wilderness even um, you you are not able to get hospital soon or medical person soon you can help a lot to the other people and save the life there it is very very beneficial for my career here in Nepal in, in our Himalaya excellent well thinking back can you think of maybe any experience that you've had in the past where maybe you would have done something differently after taking this course now that you have a little bit more knowledge and confidence? Well, uh, I had that experience myself a couple of years before on, on our Himalaya right behind this mountain called uh, Tasilapta Pass and I had one person, actually my mountain guide, were injured and then I, had, I, I have taken that course before that but I were not able to help even the splinting and those those things but now I can do a lot of different way I can give some kind of um, uh, release medicine kind of painkiller medicine um, because I feel that confidence level before I didn't and uh, um, there was a lot of uh, infected people wound infected people I can meet around the way but I I am not confident with those medicines, but now I can feel those confidence level. So on that, my um, uh, uh, accident, I just uh, wrap down and then uh, uh, bring him in a safe place from the accident place. But now I can do a lot, lot more there. I can do so. I can do a lot more better. We're very happy to hear that you're learning and that you're getting more confidence with this. So thank you. Oh, that thanks to thanks goes to you, uh, our instructors, um, Daryl, you, Zach, and Nikki, and the special thanks goes to Adventure Medical Kids and the University course here. Uh, this is Steve Mock, and I'm the director of the Kumbu Climate Center. I've been doing that with Pete Athens since about 2011. Well, we've been here. In the Kumbu area, we're actually now back in Kathmandu having a nice Indian meal at the Third Eye in Tamil. But I wanted to ask you, Steve, we just recently put on this first Wilderness Alpine First Responder course. And why was it so important for our Sherpa Mountain Guides to have this course? Well, first, I want to thank you and Jake and Nikki for, uh, for conducting that course. I know it was a lot of organizational effort, a lot of preparation. The, uh, the Wilderness First Responder course was actually requested by our Nepalese instructors. Uh, we hadn't thought of that necessarily. We teach a first aid class uh, in, the, uh, in the basic program, our basic climbing program, and you guys uh, have been involved with that in the past as well as this year. 
but we've not taught a wilderness first responder course. Those are offered in Nepal, but they cost about $1,000 per student uh, per, uh, per participant to be involved with that. And that's just un unaffordable for most of our instructors. So <clears throat> they had requested in the last couple of years a first responder course, especially last year. They requested that, said it would be very beneficial for their training, for their own safety, safety of their, their professional colleagues in the mountains, their clients, uh, and other climbers on the mountain. Certainly makes them more employable as well. With the little card indicating that they have uh, passed, they have uh, received passed the course, received the WAFR training. They're going to going to be more employable, probably at a little bit higher salary as well. So it's professionally very very beneficial for them. Do you want to add anything, Jake? I guess one question I have offhand is, how do you think the training and instruction was received? That is a good question. That's a great question. It's a great. Is question. it a great question? Say yes. That's a great question. Well, it was received well. What do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so I think the uh, I think the participants were uh, were thrilled with the course. I think it was it was even more than they had hoped for. Uh, they they were interested in this course. I, I told them in December when I was over here with some additional training that they were going to need to put a lot of preparation time into it. You arrived, and once we began that program, they were on time every day. They were focused every day. Even the days when we couldn't feel our toes uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, they stayed with it till 5 or 6 in the evening, back for evening sessions. They asked questions. They were quick to volunteer, quick to get involved, and I, I think they were absolutely thrilled. One last thing I might want to ask is the role of Keshar. So Keshar Shrisha, one of our instructors, actually has some sort of a exchange program. Could you explain a little bit about that and what was so unique about this year's recipient? Each year, in partnership with the National Park Service, the Kumbu Climbing Center has selects one uh, instructor, a Nepalese instructor, to participate in what we call the Sherpa Exchange Program where they travel to the United States for the summer, essentially, a month in of the month of June on Denali, uh, Denali National Park in Alaska, July in Yosemite National Park in California, and then in August, Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. That The purpose of that is further training, exposure to uh, the U.S. National Park system with the hopes that we can create enough of a critical mass of, of locals here, guides and professionals here in the mountains of Nepal to help kind of organize the national parks in, the, in which they work in a little bit more user-friendly manner. Uh, the uh, More of the sustainability, more of a, of a uh, recreation approach to allow uh, more Westerners and more locals to, uh, to partic participate in some of those outdoor activities. Also, uh, preservation of the uh, of the resources that they do have. So Kesar Shrestha has been an instructor at KCC for a number of years now. He's an outstanding instructor, uh, very, very skilled, has worked with our advanced program for about four years running, has been trained by some of the best rigging for rescue instructors out of, uh, out of Colorado and Alaska, um, and is just simply an outstanding person and an outstanding instructor. So this year he was selected to to participate in the Sherpa Exchange Program, and we'll be traveling to Alaska in late May or early June to begin that. So I've talked about this, begs the question, how effective is a WUFR certification or a WAFR certification? 
Again, we don't have the answers to that. And another interesting question is, how good is the retention? And one of the problems is that the language barrier was somewhat significant to some of our Nepali students, whereas many could speak English, the English isn't as good, obviously, as Nepali. And so we were challenged with that. And so a lack of research has created a void in critical information regarding woofer skill and knowledge retention, as highlighted by an article by Rue in the March 2018 edition of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, our journal. It ends up that many wilderness first responders are likely going to lose their skill and knowledge over time and much more rapidly if that person hasn't really had much exposure in first aid or, moreover, being a healthcare provider. Some of the entities that would be talked about in a wilderness first responder class are actually not frequently encountered, and so this too can contribute to skill loss. Our plan was to try to mitigate any losses with the availability of online video feeds, and we will be visiting the KCC yearly in the foreseeable future to assess skills. Now, we did have translators, but of course, there's nothing like an instructor to have the native tongue spoken to them. But although many clients are going to be foreign tourists, and because many guide companies require English skills to the guides, we didn't feel too bad about teaching this in English, and we were making sure that our lectures were not too fast so that everybody could understand us. Planning Center with integrity, honesty, and good words, and we hope to see you June 13th for the grand opening of the building. Thank you all so much, especially to Steve Mott, co-director, Pete Athens, both of them have put in 12 years to get the program to where it is today, and we look forward to their continued work with it. <laughs> Kumbu Climbing Center celebrated 15 years, it's actually 16 years, but we'll say 15 years of existence this year. And currently, they have a building that we were able to teach in. And I'll just give you a little parting shot from talk I had with Conrad Anker, who was up there and who's really excited to really improve the proficiency of our Sherpa climbing guides. Here we go. Conrad, thanks for coming. And I just wanted to ask you a few quick questions. Number one, We've just had our 15th anniversary of the KCC? That's correct. We just, uh, graduation happened and it's pretty fresh. <laughs> it's really fresh. So there's been a lot of help from the Western instructors and what we've seen is a gradual assimilation or maybe more of a large leadership role by the Sherpas. Where do you see the KCC going out from here? Hopefully the annual program that we just uh, wrapped up the 12-day uh, the course continues, and that's the core of the Kumbu Climbing Center. And that um, currently all eight classes were taught by Nepali uh, instructors and Nepali assistant instructors. And this also included um, the earth sciences and the, and the medicine first aid thing. So all this is um, really in the transition there. It is essential to have some contact and information exchange with Western climbers because these people that we're training here, the Nepali people that are trained at the Kumu Climbing Center, are primarily working in the recreation and tourism business of Nepal. And that uh, transfer of information is, is really essential to it. Now, with that, you've got some great plans coming up. What are some of your plans this year as far as any expeditions and interesting things that are coming up for you? Um, we're here in uh, the Kumbu, so working to uh, further 
understand the high altitude cryosphere, so the ice and, and the glaciers and what uh, the Himalayas, um, how they're responding to the climate change um, and what we can find in the uh, paleoclimate data set. So anything from uh, ice to lake sediments. So yeah, it'll be, hopefully things go well and we have a greater understanding of this region of our planet. Yeah, you're going to be in the Everest region looking at some of those things? Yeah, we'll be here uh, taking a look at that. So, um, yeah, the uh, glacial ice can be a um, sort of a sponge for pollutants in the atmosphere. So a lot of that is um, what we're looking at. So particulate organic pollution, black carbon from the Industrial Revolution. How is that showing up in the, um, the, the paleoclimate record that, that glaciers provide? Wow, it's yeah. great, man. And the students are all around. <laughs> totally, yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks a lot. And I appreciate that, you know, not only as a well-known climber, but as an activist, you've really given back to so many people. And it isn't just, you know, all for me, me, me. You've really given back more than, you know, anybody can imagine. So thanks. Well, thank you. That's quite the compliment. But, um, yeah, there's... Uh yeah, what are you going to do in your life? Sit around and eat potato chips or are you going to go out there and make change? So. <laughs> Love it. All right. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot. We'll yeah, see Darryl. you. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2019. Be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be educated. Be safe. Be upright. And let us know if you have any ideas for future podcast. Ciao.